Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Hello and welcome to Rock and Roll Politics, the weekly podcast with me, Steve Richards. Thanks so much for tuning in wherever you are in the UK or around the rest of the world. And as ever, in our time together, we have got a lot to cram in. If it's okay with you, I'll reflect on two or three things going on at the moment. Boris Johnson's speech in which he linked Brexit with Ukraine the P&O crisis and the testimony from the Foreign Office whistleblower about the exporting of animals from Afghanistan. They're all connected. Everything connects in politics. We've got some fantastic questions from you. Uh, One of the joys of this is that you kind of get an example from Australia of, say, how uh, there's been a proliferation of independent candidates. And then you get today... From Ireland, another example of where there are a lot of independent candidates, but with a very different view. More on tuition fees from those absolutely in the field, so to speak. And of course, lots on Ukraine and what's going on in that ongoing dark nightmare. So yeah, tons. So get rowing, running, baking, and all the things that you do during the walking by a river. It's a very popular one whilst listening to the podcast. Thanks, those of you who tuned in to the King's Place stream or came to the live show. We crammed in a lot that night. I reflected also, I'm going to return to this theme, and it's very topical in the week of Rishi Sunak's uh, big statement, uh, the destabilizing impact of inflation. And we went back to the 70s, you know, the decade of Slade and Bowie in his pomp and and so on, but looked at the kind of that wasn't just about Bowie and Slade, although it could have been and maybe should have been. But we looked at the kind of destabilizing impact of inflation, not only on people's lives and the economy, but within governments who find they can't plan ahead and constantly change policy as a result. And we're in that world. It's nowhere near as bad. I mean, in in, in the seventies, inflation went up to kind of the late 20s percentage-wise at times. And there was a point, I mentioned it at King's Place, where I remember my history teacher saying, have you noticed on books they don't put the price anymore? Because by the time it's published, they'll have already needed to put the price up. We were in that kind of world then. It's not 70s scale yet, but inflation is returning big time. We'll return to that on another uh, podcast. But anyway, thank you all for who tuned in and great questions from around the world as ever. And thanks also for those who are subscribing to Patreon. One of the things you get on Patreon and bonus podcasts, uh, the current series, uh, well, the current series, the first one, because we only just started this Patreon, is on general elections of epic significance and with a kind of cinematic quality. 
And next week, I'll be announcing the next general election that will be featured as one of the bonuses uh, in the patron tier. So do subscribe to that. You can get it at Rock and Roll Politics Patreon. There'll be a link on the blurb. It's between two general elections. Yeah, the next one. This is based on your suggestions. Going to announce it and then it will arrive as if by magic, the next cinematic election. So before all of that, if it's okay with you, I want to begin with uh, a reflection on Johnson and that connection between Ukraine and Brexit that he made in a speech to a Tory conference in Blackpool at the weekend. If any of you kindly listened last week, I was arguing that contrary to the number 10 spin, that the war in Ukraine would not be Johnson's Falklands factor, you know, the Falklands factor which propelled Thatcher into a sort of imperious, steely war leader when she, in inverted commas, won that particular war. I argued, by the way, there was a lot of mythology around the Falklands factor, but it did, for those who admired her, she became more steely and more imperious. She certainly did within herself as well. And I argue this wouldn't happen with Johnson for lots of reasons. But one of the arguments was that actually prime ministers don't change as a result of war. Some of them might be better suited to a wartime situation, uh, most famously Churchill, who was a hopeless peacetime prime minister, and by the way, a pretty hopeless minister in other departments. But his uh, character chimed with the needs of the time in that global emergency when he became prime minister in 1940. And to some extent, Thatcher, who had already been called the Iron Lady, uh, it kind of worked for her, although she was culpable for the invasion in the first place because of her hardline approach to spending, including defence spending. The emergency kind of suited her. Johnson remains Johnson as Churchill remained Churchill and Thatcher remained Thatcher. And that means very quickly he becomes the Daily Telegraph columnist in power. And that explains the frivolous, pathetic linking uh, of Ukraine where people are resisting appalling uh, violence uh, and terror. He made that link with Brexit. Um, And you can see why he did it. He is going to make much of Brexit uh, throughout his time as leader. Prime ministers always seize on an issue that helped them win one election and can never let it go. And he won't let Brexit go. And Labour need to be ready with an argument about why it's been bad or else he will continue to use it successfully. And he clearly thinks he can, or else he wouldn't have made such a trite comparison. And it wasn't spontaneous. It was in a speech. He writes his speeches on the whole because he enjoys that bit of leadership. It is reminds him of writing a column. And it was a kind of provocative Daily Telegraph column. And that is who he is. He was, in his own terms, a successful, highly paid columnist. People liked his columns. And he is a columnist, and he won't really change. He's not a master of detail or policy implementation or manager of teams. All of that is chaotic. And so you get moments like this that um, privately disturb ministers and some Tory MPs. Ministers have had to go out and defend it and say he didn't mean to make a direct comparison. And yet, as interviewers have made clear, there is a direct comparison in a single 
sentence. So he remains who he is, and Tory MPs, I think, are not. They might have withdrawn their demands for him to go, the few who had made them publicly. But I think people continue to be, when I say people, Tory MPs. They're the only ones who have agency in the relationship between Johnson and Johnson's future. I think they continue to be disturbed by elements of his leadership. And that is a reminder of why they have cause to be disturbed. Because what happened wasn't just kind of an indication of his frivolous mindset, although it was, but it invited condemnation in all kinds of places different European countries. I I saw criticism in the United States. And so whatever erratic authority Johnson has had in the Ukrainian nightmare is immediately undermined. So that has an immediate practical consequence, as well as being an act of such frivolity and malevolence, really. And as I say, it was calculated because he wrote it down. It wasn't in an interview where his mind tends to wander and when he tends to look nervously at advisers sitting nearby, this was a speech. And so there will be no change of aura or projection with the Johnson premiership. It is what it is and he is what he is as Churchill was what he is and Thatcher was what she was. So there's a further reminder of that in the extraordinary revelations, which I hope by the time you hear this would have had extensive coverage. A Foreign Office whistleblower has written extraordinary testimony, and it will get news coverage by the time you hear this. But I really recommend that you read the whole thing. It's only seven pages. But the whistleblower reveals, first of all, it was uh, this is on the evacuation of Afghanistan. It was widespread knowledge in the FCDO crisis centre that the decision on the Afghan staff, the the decision to prioritise animals being evacuated from Afghanistan came from the Prime Minister. And this person writes, I saw messages to this effect on Microsoft Teams. I heard it discussed in the crisis centre, including by senior civil servants. And I was copied on numerous emails which clearly suggested this and which no one, including Nigel Casey, another figure acting as crisis gold, challenged. Now, The Prime Minister Boris Johnson has denied this uh, when asked about it. No, nothing to do with this decision. So, and here is a whistleblower challenging, incidentally, the testimony of a senior Foreign Office official, Philip Barton. Barton, who, and she writes, "I do not find it credible that Philip Barton or those who drafted various." Uh, responses to this denying the prime ministerial intervention would not have been aware of the prime ministerial interventions. Anyway, it goes into considerable detail, making clear what we have all suspected, that this was a a direct intervention from Johnson. But more widely, uh, the testimony, it says only seven pages, is damning about the administrative chaos, raising all kinds of questions about the structure and inclinations of those involved in what was a crisis 
Um, remember, it was at the end of August, wasn't it, when uh, Biden basically said, right, that's it for Afghanistan. It was at the time a, a crisis of epic significance, still with consequences. For those of you who heard my interview with Jonathan Powell on this podcast a couple of weeks ago, he made clear he, he's, he's directly involved with the situation in Afghanistan. He made clear the dire consequences. Um, and if it wasn't for Ukraine, that too would be played out. But here again, we have an example of Johnson publicly saying something that appears to be wholly at odds with what he actually did, echoes of Partygate. Um, but wider questions about how Britain is governed, the structures and so on, especially in the face of a crisis. We had it with the pandemic early on. There was not just preposterous leadership from Johnson with all his libertarian instincts being played out in delaying lockdowns and so on, but chaos over the sort of contracts doled out worth billions of pounds for equipment and so on. Questions about how the governing process actually works. And that's a theme we must return to together. It is, it, you know, to make Britain work, the, the structures have to be right. And uh, what we see too often are chaotic sequences being played out in, in, with the current sort of structures and cultures. Anyway, it's worth reading those um, seven pages. Oh, yeah. Talking of which, again, everything connects. The P&O saga is so interesting, isn't it? Because for much of the time in the UK, ministers hail uh, the UK's flexible labour markets. Um, not just this government uh, began with the Thatcher governments. It continued to some extent with the new Labour governments. Um, and and it, it, it acquires a greater significance uh, post-Brexit, where Britain has decided perversely to turn away from its biggest uh, market on its doorstep and so needs to attract people here through other means. So uh, flexible labour, come here, you can hire, fire, do what you want, no no, no infrastructure, no, no bureaucracy. Let's return to a favourite word in the podcast, consequences. Uh, if you hail a light regulatory uh, labour market, and there are some reasons for hailing uh, a labour market which is not too stifling and bureaucratic, but when it is so light, a consequence can be what has happened with these uh, P&O workers. And what's interesting is the government clearly got some advanced warning of it and just thought, well, here we go, this is the flexible labour market, and on we go, and didn't anticipate the outcry. And it's interesting to see why this outcry has happened, because frankly, in the UK's lightly regulated labour market, things like this have happened before. And I think what has really uh, captured the imagination of people not the imagination, that's the wrong word because it's actually happening in front of our eyes, is precisely that. There was a video of some poor sod who clearly had been just following orders announcing the immediate uh, sacking of the, the P&O staff and that went viral. And in a way, it made so vivid for everybody the utter callous brutality of the employers who had taken this decision and were going to act immediately, irrespective of the consequences on people's lives. Uh, people who had worked there, in some cases for many decades, sacked just like that. 
But if you are not going to have a properly regulated labour market, this will happen. This will be a consequence. And there was that cinematic moment, wasn't there, where the local MP went to Dover, Natalie Elphick. I don't know if you saw it. And she went along thinking that she would be cheered as she said she was defending these workers who had been sacked in this way. And the workers who were there protesting protested at her because she had backed measures that enabled this to happen. You know, it is this word consequences. You can say to companies, oh, come here, it's very easy, you won't be burdened by too much regulation when you hire people. And yet, when you fire them, if it is done on social media, in effect, with these videos being put out there of the statement of the company sacking the workers, all hell rightly breaks loose. And as ever, when you get these dramas, there are wider issues. See, it's this lightly regulated market isn't helping with the, one of the fundamental issues, and it's something that uh, Keir Starmer wants to focus more on, which is Britain is not brilliantly productive. It is it has low productivity. It was it's been an obsession of one government after another of how we address this. And you would have thought as part of the remedy, this lightly regulated market would, oh, yeah, yeah, you can get people in, unemployment will be low, productivity will be high. Well, it hasn't worked like that. And you can have a better regulated labour market as regulation should not always be seen as a dirty word, a bonfire of regulation. We're going to set people free. Isn't it interesting? how words like tax and regulation are seen uh, as, as negative terms, the tax burden, freeing people from regulation, as if regulation is always a trap. And if Labour were uh, supple, they would seize the words freedom and burden and turn them on their heads. Regulation could free up workers from terrifying insecurities that they are about to be sacked. But regulations could also mean uh, people have to be better trained and therefore become more productive. They are liberating, or can be. You don't want it to be too stifling, obviously. And it's the same with this word tax burden. Well, tax could be a burden, but what about if taxes are spent on the NHS and it frees you from a terrible illness when you're treated more quickly because the NHS is well resourced because of the language of these things are so interesting and uh, always point one way until you get something like the P&O drama being played out on Twitter and Facebook and places. And suddenly you think, well, surely they should be better protected. The company can't just sack them like that. Ah, better protection is regulation. Ah, so regulation can free people from a kind of tyrannous regime. So regulation can be about freedom, not necessarily uh, be stifling and anti-freedom. And the same with tax and the tax burden. Uh, there have to be ways of making these terms seem less sinister 
if uh, Britain is to be properly, effectively regulated, not in a stifling way, just effectively. I was thinking that when, you know, we after Brexit and there was no regulation over the quality of water and, of course, the water companies pump sewage into the rivers and things. Well, what about those who want the freedom to swim in these places, you know, or just enjoy them? That freedom was taken under the apparent freedom of fewer regulations. We've got to explore these terms on this podcast. Anyway, thank you so much for uh, listening to those reflections on those three big themes. Johnson, the Daily Telegraph columnist, wholly out of his depth as a serious prime minister. The language of freedom, regulation, tax, liberator or burden and the stuff about what really happened in that evacuation from Afghanistan which as I say you know in a way has lessons about Ukraine as well um are we you know even Britain which has a very small part in all of this is it being done in a competent way. Just read the seven pages, as I say. Now, I've got my that seven pages on my computer. I'm now going to quickly, as I talk to you, go to your questions. And we've got some great range of questions, as ever, all relating to the kind of things whirling around at the moment. Rob Watson, a question actually related to this um, uh, whole Brexit thing. It seems that the Conservative and Brexit Party, as led by Boris Johnson, is locked in an obdurate mindset that they can't escape, which is Brexit is the only force that would define UK politics. Is Johnson in his everlasting election campaign now going to bang the drum of Brexit repeatedly and ceaselessly, despite the fact that the Ukraine war has rendered the whole Brexit idea as farcical? In a previous podcast, I was arguing, and I know uh, some of you have emailed about it. Oh, yeah, I must give you the email address. Some people say, what's the email address? Actually, some people email me saying, what's the email address? That gets a bit silly. It's steverick14 at iCloud.com. I've mentioned that about 23 minutes in. If you're running and stuff, wonder, oh, I can't stop running and take the note of the email address. Well, there you are. When you finish the run and the podcast, go back about 24 minutes and you'll get the email address. It'll also be on the blurb. It is interesting, as I said earlier, how... Prime Ministers can't let go of what they consider to have been the reason for their first big election victory. They try it on again and again, sometimes successfully, sometimes not. And uh, Johnson, as we saw with his Ukraine parallel, clearly intends to return to Brexit. And Labour need to uh, be very prepared for this because, you see, what they're going to try and do at the election, the Conservatives, is um, they're going to fight partly a 1992-style election, Labour's hidden tax bombshells and all the rest of it. And if it is Johnson leading them into it, they know they're going to have to deal with this trust issue because Johnson will be going into that election campaign having lied left, right and centre and been seen to have done so. So how can they turn the trust on its head? And they're going to turn, try and make Starmer 
the trust issue. You can't trust Starmer. He wants to bugger up the 2016, they won't use the phrase bugger up. Uh, He wanted to block the people's uh, verdict in the Brexit referendum. He's a Remainer from Islington and all this kind of stuff. And so Labour will have to find a way of exposing the terrible flaws in the precise Brexit that Johnson and old Frosty with his Union Jack socks. By the way, where are my Union Jack socks? I was promised them from uh, a listener. Uh, They haven't arrived yet. Uh, Frosty and Johnson negotiated the worst possible Brexit uh, available. And we're seeing the consequences being played out in Northern Ireland and elsewhere. And if Labour haven't framed the arguments, uh, they will get Keir Starmer and others on the issue not only about Brexit, but trust. And so the stakes are very high and Brexit will be – Johnson, we know, will make Brexit part of his election campaign uh, because he's even banging on about it in the midst of this nightmarish war. So the arguments have to be in place to expose what really went on in that negotiation with Frosty and Johnson half paying attention and virtually no one else. And the stakes are very high. Joanna Lata writes, I know it's a minor point in the scheme of things, but I was watching PMQs when Dominic Raab and Angela Rayner were the uh, main participants. I thought it was very interesting when Raab tried to answer a question by referring back to Labour's time in government. But from what I remember, the speaker interrupted and suggested that he couldn't keep on harking back to the past. Could this be a new approach by the Speaker to eventually get Johnson to actually answer Keir Starmer's questions? And Joanna adds, I'm suffering with COVID. It's a horrible virus. But have the Patreon podcast to listen to to help recovery. That's it. You see those bonus podcasts recover you from COVID. You forget about the virtually unavailable antiviral drugs that you have to be about 150 to qualify to get. Yeah, the bonus podcast. Well, thank you for that, John. I hope you're feeling a bit better. By the way, in passing, don't you think that COVID is returning as a, a story? Johnson's working on the assumption is gone, you know. But people tell me if they go to other European countries, mask wearing is still rigidly applied. And here, as ever, it's the free-for-all. Note that word freedom again. Yeah, free-for-all. Freedom to catch this thing and get ill like Joanna has, and the infection rates are soaring. And I think Johnson could be hit once more by COVID in the sense that as the issue of COVID um, and his libertarianism and his kind of inability to have bandwidth on more than one thing at a time could come back to torment him. On the substance of it, It is very interesting how Boris Johnson, Dominic Raab and others, when trying to explain away some calamitous event or policy or whatever, they obviously cite COVID and Ukraine, sometimes fairly, sometimes unfairly as factors. But yeah, the other thing they cite is the Labour government. Labour haven't been in power for a long time now. You know, they've they've lost three elections. Is it three, four? I don't know. You lose count. They lost 2010, 2017, 2019. That's three. Oh, yeah, there was one. Yeah, four, 2015. Uh, yeah, so they've lost four. Been out of power for ages. It's quite hard to blame uh, them for the consequences of a government in its 
fourth term. Now, if the speaker is doing that, I didn't notice that, Joanna. Um, yeah, he, he can be quite assertive sometimes. Um, uh, you, you know, Lindsay Hoyle, uh, he gets really cross if anything is briefed to the media before announced in Parliament. But that's another interesting example if he is doing that. I think they will find other ways of not answering questions. But in fairness, not answering questions is part of the art of politics. You just have to do it in ways that people don't altogether notice that you're not answering them. Now, as I mentioned at the beginning, what was really interesting, um, uh, one of the joys of the podcast is getting the sort of interaction, someone mentions something and then someone else does and so on. And anyway, um, Simon, who uh, listened to the podcast in Australia, was pointing out, and he thinks it's a good idea, uh, the proliferation of independent candidates in Australia fighting the next general election there. I responded by saying I'm really against these independents because it's anti-politics. Anyway, now we're getting a really fascinating example from Ireland, from the Reverend Canon uh, Paul Arbuthnot, who uh, is from the Diocese of Cork, Cloyne and Ross regular listener and has emailed us before to give the Irish perspective. And uh, Paul says, greetings once again from Ireland. Thank you very much. Well, we're gently recovering from our St. Patrick's Day celebrations. I hope it's a gentle recovery from those uh, celebrations. Whilst on one of my long walks along the East Cork countryside, I was enjoying your podcast. So thank you very much. Well, the walk sounds fantastic. One thing that uh, piqued my interest was this debate about whether independent MPs are good for the political system or not. Perhaps the situation in the Republic of Ireland might help shed some light. Due to the voting system here, we have 21 independents in a chamber of 160 seats. By their nature, they tend to focus very heavily on local issues and not on the big picture stuff about the direction of the country. They are almost like turbocharged county councillors in nature. A really good example of this is Danny Healy Rowe and Michael Henry Rowe, two brothers who are independents for Kerry. Danny Healy Rowe gained notoriety for campaigning for the issue of permits for people to drink and drive on local roads on the way home from the pub. Yes, really, Google it. I'm going to Google it. Incredible. So the problem is, and not that I don't believe you, I mean, incredible as in unbelievable. So the problem is, Independent representatives tend to be good at getting the potholes fixed, but come out with some quite frankly embarrassing nonsense. It's all designed to get headlines in local papers rather than affecting change for the common good. On that basis, I'm with you, Steve, on independence sitting in the legislature. Coherent party discipline and policy stops politics becoming farcical in the way it occasionally does in County Kerry with the Healy Ray brothers. Thank you for that. Yeah, that that, that, is, ex that is exactly the problem that you get independence in and they are depoliticised in the wider dynamic of politics and it's already bad enough uh, at Westminster I think that there is now a culture of local MPs being closer to social workers helping their constituents than potential ministers sorting out the epic problems facing this country and I think that would worsen if we had uh, more independence. Simon from Australia don't crash into a kangaroo while you're listening to this. That happened to Simon once. But maybe you'll have a different view. Uh, but that's the view from Ireland, very interesting too. 
we're back to tuition fees. It's very interesting how tuition fees are serving. I had lots of emails again this week about them. Um, and here's one from Richard Harrison. I've been interested in the emails and discussions over recent weeks about tuition fees, and there were a couple of things that I thought might be worth mentioning. Though before I do, I probably need to declare an interest as I work in a university and have worked in higher education for a lot of years. The first is just about the trebling of the tuition fees in 2012. As you say, it was a huge change, but one that's got less over time. The cap on fees has only gone up once since 2012 to 9250 and of course it's 10 years now since fees were introduced, which means that at 2012 prices, current fees are really around 7500 Still a big rise, but not as big. Yeah, that's a good point. And coincidentally, where the government expected average fees to end up when they introduced the cap at 9000 against previous experience, they naively didn't expect all universities to go straight to the top of the cap. Yeah, exactly. They all went for it. What's perhaps more interesting is the way this links back to the political cross-dressing that you've talked about in earlier podcasts. Essentially, Cameron and Osborne let the market rip trebled fees and crucially removed the student number controls that capped the number of home and at the time EU students universities could recruit. Another example of the hyper-thatcherism of that government that is generally under-noticed, though not on your podcast, of course. Yeah, I'm, I'm just going to interrupt the email to say, again, for new listeners, it really is worth revisiting the the early period of that coalition of 2010 because um, it was portrayed as expedient centrism and widely reported as that, including within the BBC, when, you know, you can agree with it if you want, but what it was, was Thatcherism on boosters. Um, And it was described to me as such at one point by Oliver Letwin as precisely that. Anyway, to return to the email. And now it turns out that the government doesn't like the results of this free market. Too many students not doing the subjects the government thinks they should be studying. So now uh, we're looking at student number controls again to keep a lid on numbers, but also with a view to trying to manage what study. So, as you say, political cross-dressing with the Johnson government again going in a very different direction from the earlier stages of the current lengthy period of conservative rule. Yeah, I hadn't thought that through, but it is interesting. If a government has a view as to what should be studied and who should be studying it, you have to intervene in the market hailed by that early uh, coalition period. Thank you, Richard. Now, yeah, back to inflation and the 1970s, because Venetia came has written to say she was in the Treasury in the 1970s when inflation was erupting as it is now, as I say, then in the 70s on a much bigger scale. And she says when she was working in the Treasury at the time, I recall that something called cash limits was introduced to help control inflation. This meant that when projecting departmental budgets forward, no longer would inflation be systematically built in. 
From then, they would have to manage within the actual figures previously forecast with no inflation added. Well, you can see, Venetia, why that started to cause problems. Maybe this was during the period when the uh, IMF, the International Monetary Fund, intervened to say the Labour government couldn't borrow any money unless it controlled spending. Because spending can go out of control with inflation. Because you project one set of figures, then inflation is sort of 20% higher. So in order to achieve the goals or pay public sector workers, you have to pay even more. And for a time, the then Chancellor Dennis Healy absolutely tried to sit on inflation by limiting public spending. And that incidentally caused all kinds of consequences, including even though many in the media thought he would be the next Labour leader and a prime minister, he never got it. For the full story, read the chapter on Healy in The Prime Ministers We Never Had by me. Um, thank you, Venetia. Uh, Alan Evans, are there any – oh, yeah, this is – because on the Patreon site at the moment we're doing elections, uh, the, the what I consider to be the cinematic and epic elections. Are there any UK elections you would consider as not being interesting for any reason? To me, 2001 stands out as the election that is the least interesting in recent history. Well, that is interesting, uh, Alan, because I that was my kind of feeling. I remember it well, and it was boring, a lot of it. But actually, one of the uh, my colleagues in in the brilliant podmasters who produced this podcast said to me, "Oh, Steve, you know the one that you should do the election you should." do for the Patriots. I said, no, what are we trying? 2001. And his argument is that this was the election that uniquely and extraordinarily Labour won a second landslide. Labour never usually wins kind of second terms with big majorities, although let's make clear they did in 1966 when um, they had a tiny majority in 64 and won a landslide in 66. But this was the only example of Labour winning two successive landslides. So this is a, this is the interesting thing about elections. What makes them fascinating? Um, Alan Evans, who, who wrote the email, uh, it, it is right that it felt, first of all, very predictable. Everyone assumed Labour was going to win and win pretty big. But at the same time, it was significant, hugely, that Labour won pretty big. And yet there are other layers, as there always are with elections. Uh, when you actually analyse the votes cast, there was quite a big drop in support for Labour in that 2001 election. But it was yeah, yeah. So there's an example. Some people cite it as the beginning of the end of that Labour rule that carried on for a long, long time after 2001. They won another election in 2005. But on the other hand, it was an election basically about tax and spend. But normally Labour were on the defensive over tax and spend. But to Blair and Brown's credit, they had turned it round. So they dared to argue that a vote for the Conservative would mean a big cut in public spending. So public spending in that election became a virtue 
Normally it's a sin implying wastefulness and so on, uh, something which I fear might be the case at the next election here. I say I fear because it's so obvious that public spending is required vastly on the NHS and other issues, uh, social care which hasn't properly been addressed and so on. So I think I'm with my uh, Podmaster's colleague, really, that I think it's worth looking at. It's not the one we're going to do next. It's not on the possible list. But anyway, thank you for that, Alan. I hope you're on that Patreon site because you're going to get some great bonus podcasts. I might quite tempted to contradict you and do 2001 at some point. Who knows? Anyway, thank you very much for that. Okay, let's now uh, Michael Haskell, who's in Flintshire in Wales. Uh, Steve, you were ruminating on why the Conservatives often got the language right to connect with the electorate at general elections in a way Labour rarely did. In a way, we've been talking about this today, Michael, with, with, with words like freedom, freedom from regulation, the tax burden, whether these words can be turned round so some regulatory frameworks become a form of liberation. Mike says, if you strip the rationales of both the major political parties to their very core, in essence, the Conservatives speak to the me-I psyche of the electorate, whilst Labour to the we-us. The fact that the Conservatives win so often is a huge reflection, or perhaps that should be indictment, depending on your point of view, on us, the electorate, especially since the 1980s. And a related but perhaps relevant aside to that last point, at what stage does aspiration, a good thing, become simply greed, not a good thing? Yeah, I think you raise very interesting themes and they recur, as you know, in this podcast all the time and have already today. And you're right, and it is an interesting point that, uh, so me, I, the Conservatives speak to, Labour, the we, us. But isn't it interesting? Again, it comes back to language. The we, us could free up the me, I to flourish more. And that, it seems to me, is the connection uh, that Labour has failed to make when it loses elections, as it tends to do. And the Conservatives are brilliant in their language at making me, I seem the only possible route towards better lives for me, I. Until you turn that on the head, it's quite hard to challenge the me, I in ways that doesn't imply some sort of hair shirt altruism. But it needn't. For selfish reasons, there are advantages of the we, us. Uh, Thank you, Michael. And finally, from Laundry Joe, so cool because he does his laundry while listening to the podcast. May I ask what you think are the greatest political mistakes and why they were made? Some possible candidates. Theresa May's decision to call an early election, definitely up there. Um, Early elections, very interestingly, I think Johnson has clocked this and won't call an early election uh, if it is him. Early elections rarely work. You could argue that in December 2019, it was an early election in the sense that Johnson had just been prime minister from the previous July, but they were exceptional circumstances, a hung parliament with that Brexit thing. Get Brexit done. Get rid of that. 
Uh, yeah, Theresa May definitely. Lib Dems support for tuition fees tripling. That's uh, coming up as a theme a lot in the podcast. Laundry Joe and is yeah, I agree with that one. The Lib Dem decision to go into coalition rather than confidence and supply. Yeah, the whole drama around the 2010 hung parliament uh, is fascinating. Um, I can see why they went into coalition, but boy, did they go in with Nick Clegg misreading the nature of the party he was forming an alliance with, or perhaps not wholly misreading it, but misreading how he and the Lib Dems had secured a decent uh, vote in that election. Uh, You know, they had positioned themselves to the left of New Labour and then joined this uh, party of the radical right. And another example given from Laundry Joe, Cameron's decision not to face down the Eurosceptics within and instead make the Bloomberg speech committing to a referendum. They are all good examples of, uh, of, of errors. Errors and mistakes, though, are crude terms in British politics, because you could give other examples, the war decision to go to war in Iraq or to be more precise, to back the US in the decision to go to war in Iraq is another one, the poll tax and so on. But uh, the poll tax being a classic policy error. And yet, maybe I'm going to do some bonus podcast. You give me a good idea, Laundry Joe, on what appear to be just crass mistakes. And yet mistakes are the wrong way of looking at it. These decisions are made with all kinds of calculations in mind, even the poll tax, which was on so many levels a catastrophe and a factor in the fall of Margaret Thatcher. There were, believe it or not, uh, arguments for what she was doing. And I can see how she got in the mindset that what she was doing was actually going to be popular. Yeah, You've given me an idea there. But uh, that's for another time. Uh, Thank you so much for listening today. Yeah, we've got what a a kind of themes erupting around us all over the place at the moment, aren't they? I must return again to the theme of political language. I know we've done it before a few times, but there are so many other examples. I think it will come up again once uh, some of you will hear this after Rishi Sunak has spoken, some before. But um, yeah, maybe that will trigger some more reflections next week. And I say next week, for those of you on Patreon, and if you're not there, please do join us. I'll reveal the next uh, general election. But yeah, it's going to be another epic week. And we haven't really reflected this week on the ongoing situation in Ukraine. We have, of course, tangentially with the Johnson in Europe stuff. What is the end game? How wars end? was another theme at uh, the King's Place show last week. And um, it is worth um, posing that question in uh, this particular nightmare. Um, It was one of the themes of the historian A.J.P. Taylor, who's one of my heroes. He used to improvise and ad-lib talks. And one of his series on the BBC was How Wars End. And I'm not sure this has been explored enough in terms of uh, Ukraine, but that's perhaps for another week. Anyway, in spite of all the grim stuff happening, have a great week and keep running, baking, walking and all the other things you do while you're listening to the podcast. And let's get together to make sense of it all next week. Thanks so much for listening. Take care. Bye. Bye.